0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history,
1: politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio
0: Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We'd like to first of all thank everyone who contributed to last week's Pledge Drive. We do not as yet have the final total uh, that, for everything that was committed to Radio Parallax, but it appears to be about $2,000. At least when you add together the 1400 we officially were credited with during our hour and a lot of other people had said, hey, I tried to pledge to you, but I didn't get in in time, etc. At any rate, thanks again. We did make our target of plus thousand plus and should allow us to continue operations uh, as before, well, for at least one more year. We will try and get a list of contributors and thank all of you individually on next week's show. Segments two and three today will be encore presentations of Radio Parallax. We think you will enjoy them. Later on in this segment, we're going to talk to a couple of old friends, uh, America's foremost political comic, Will Durst. Durst will be appearing at a party later this evening uh, to celebrate uh, a Sacramento-area institution, the Comic Press News, which, not coincidentally, brings you Durst's column every month. Let's commence the show as we like to do with... On this date in history, on this date in history, which is April 26th in 1804, thousands of meteorite fragments shower the French town of L'Anglais. This meteor shower proved even to the most ardent skeptics that stones could indeed fall from the sky. And in an item which, as far as we know, was not noted by Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour, on April 26th, 1862, in a letter to her editor, American poet Emily Dickinson remarked that although she had heard of Walt Whitman, she had not read any of his work because she'd been told that his poems were disgraceful. And on April 26th, in what is described as a lax day at the U.S. Patent Office, inventor John Sutliff was granted a patent for his perpetual motion machine. And on April 26th, Thirteen years ago, 1994, South Africa held its first multiracial parliamentary election and elected former political prisoner Nelson Mandela president in a landslide. Our quote of the day comes from the recently departed Kurt Vonnegut, who said, Be careful what you pretend to be, because you are what you pretend to be. Our quip of the day, and I do like this one, comes from comedian Elaine Boozler, who said, Men... Want to be really, really close to someone who will leave them alone. Our statistic of the day is much less amusing. ABC News Washington Post poll shows that for the first time, a narrow majority of Americans say the U.S. will lose the war in Iraq. 51% now say the U.S. will lose, while 35% say the U.S. will eventually prevail. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. Hey. According to The Week magazine, this week is a good week for ghouls. After a Geneva watchmaker unveiled a line of luxury watches formed from steel recovered from the hull of the Titanic, the watches, priced at $7,800 to $173,000, are a message of hope of life stronger than death, said company CEO Yvonne Arpa. Ghouls indeed. This week, on the other hand, was surely a bad week for men, after British scientists announced that they have a way to make sperm cells from a person's bone marrow, paving the way for lesbian couples, in fact, for all women, to have their own biological children without assistance from any man. We can't say as we think that one's a good idea. But then we are a couple of men. And finally, in what must surely rank as an ugly week for higher education, USA Today revealed that head football coaches at NCAA Division I schools are paid, on average, $900,000. Twice as much as college presidents, and about ten times as much as full-time professors. Anyway, that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, uh, let's see. Uh, since we had a show last week, there's been so much going on that we could fill up a whole show with uh, news items, and we'll probably do that on next week's program. We need to do that about, you know, once a month. One item we must surely talk a little bit more about in future programs is the fact that the Sacramento News and Review was publishing a advertised section uh, that consisted of, uh, well, the Sacramento Union. Yes, in the page of the Sacramento News and Review, we're not used to reading the likes of... Uh, These comments from Mark Williams, described as Sacramento Union columnist. To borrow from the Three Stooges, fish is good brain food. Democrats should fish for whale. I would quote something pithy and profound, but that 70-year-old crack is not only appropriate, but highbrow for lowlifes like House Madam Pelosi and the plague of creeps and freaks who flanked the bizarre housewife freed from dishes by a rich husband. And so on, and so on, and so on. Uh, He's described as Sacramento Union columnist. Mark Williams is, but, but here on Radio Parallax, we refer to him as jackass. And by the way, isn't it great to have a First Amendment? Of course, being a public figure, Mark Williams is fair game. I could not say that about some people I've been associated with lately, who have been jackasses but are not public figures. So for those people, and you probably know who you are, we'll just play the sound effect. Now, I don't know if you caught uh, the show uh, I did did on Tuesday at Cap Radio where we talked about uh, how to avoid unpleasant encounters back in the wood with bears, but if you did not, it might be time to, again, do our annual public service announcement, which comes from the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. With the good weather upon us, of course, people in Alaska, or sometimes in the Yellowstone area, will go out into the woods where they may encounter grizzly bears. So we have this following announcement from, again, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. It says that outdoorsmen are advised to wear noisy little warning bells on their clothing so as to not startle bears that aren't expecting them. They also advise outdoorsmen to carry pepper spray with them in case of an encounter with a bear. It is also a good idea, they say, to watch out for fresh signs of bear activity. Outdoorsmen should be prepared to recognize the difference between black bear and grizzly bear dung. It notes that black bear dung is smaller, has a fruity odor, and contains a lot of berries, and also squirrel fur, whereas grizzly bear dung is larger, and contains little warning bells, and smells like pepper spray. Yes, I believe that's the f- fifth year in a row we've worked that joke into the program, and I was able to work, it. I'm proud to say, over at KXJZ. And for the record, our bear expert got quite a laugh out of it. And you know what? One question I, I, I meant to ask him, I'm sorry I didn't get to, whether, whether, as far as he knew, Yogi was indeed smarter than the average bear. As long as we're talking bears, I did want to note that if you checked in Psychology Today last month, you may have noticed a, a related study on Ursal defecation. Yeah, apparently 98% of the time, bears, when given a woods, non-woods choice, elect to perform their bodily functions in the woods. All right, uh, here's an item from the media and arts department that we can't resist. Apparently some of the UK's most popular rock bands are set to remake the iconic Beatles album *Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band this spring. The BBC has enlisted a host of hit musical acts including Oasis, The Killers, Kaiser Chiefs, Travis, Razor Light and James Morrison for the project which will pay tribute to the album's upcoming 40th anniversary. This will be not only a unique radio event but a very special musical moment Leslie Douglas, controller of BBC Radio 2 said in an interview with the BBC News. These bands are participating in recording sessions with BBC Radio 2 the tribute to air on June 2nd. Jeff Emmerich, the original engineer who recorded Sgt. Pepper's in 1967, is also taking part. And reportedly Mr. Emmerich will record the new cover album with the same equipment he used for the Fab Four's original at London's famed Abbey Road Studios. We hope you will enjoy the show All right, from the science department, we have uh, the startling news that astronomers studying Gliese 581, a red dwarf star, about 20 light years away from where we are, have announced the discovery of a planet that may feature the most Earth-like conditions of any place ever observed outside our own solar system. Gliese 581 is about one-third the mass of our sun and only about one-fiftieth as bright. But because the new planet's 14 times closer than we are to our sun, this planet may have the right temperatures. The math shows that the mean temperature of this this super-Earth lies between 0 and 40 degrees Celsius, and its radius is estimated to be only 1.5 times that of our planet. Pretty interesting stuff, where we will need to follow up on this, although all the preliminary reports indicate that it'll take many years of study to determine more about what's going on with this particular planet. This is great stuff. You just, just got to love stories like that. And a rather fascinating uh, news story from the science department we're going to follow up on in future programs um, is the fact that research in, uh, in Scandinavia, using, I guess, Swedish and American researchers together, uh, have suggested that there's a newly discovered virus that may strongly be tied to the incidence of stillbirths. And I'm not sure about the pronunciation, but I guess it's Lejungan virus. L. J. U. N. G. A. N. Member of the family of viruses known as picornaviruses. Other members uh, cause polio, foot and mouth disease, intestinal conditions, and sometimes the common cold. Researchers believe that infection by this virus may be responsible for a significant fraction of stillbirths. The virus is apparently common in American rodents. These scientists got on the track of this, uh, this bug when they observed the incidence of stillbirths in Sweden was related to the population density of rodents in the country, which varied in a cyclical manner. Apparently, previous studies had reported that 86% of pregnant lab mice infected with this virus deliver dead pups, compared to just 14% of uh, control mice that are virus-free. This uh, research is still pretty preliminary, but uh, very, very fascinating uh, stuff from a medical standpoint. And from the world of commerce, how about this? Uh, this item? Americans drive an estimated 226 million vehicles, but China is closing the gap. It will have at least 130 million cars eight years from now, and they're all going to need gas. Right now, up to 80% of China's oil demand goes for trucks and freight transportation, but Beijing is constructing a 52,000-mile highway system, about the same length as interstates in the U.S., and uh, China's increased demand for oil will translate into higher costs at the pump for us, to say nothing of issues of global warming. Of course, if you've seen An Inconvenient Truth, you know the Chinese have managed to put in uh, uh, <laughs> mileage standards which, uh, you know, are w- way ahead of ours, which are what, back in the 70s, I think. You know what? We're going to keep trying to get Al Gore for this show. You never know. And we have a rather surprising item from the miscellaneous file. Apparently in the mid-70s, 28% of Major League Baseball players were African American. Today, only 8% are black. About 30% of players are Latino. Black players say that the game is now rarely played in America's inner cities. And I read also that a lot of the black players that are in the major leagues right now come from Latin countries. So, you know, it's, this is bad news for America's inner cities, at least from a baseball standpoint. All right, returning to the program at this juncture is our old pal, the publisher and editor of The Humor Times, James Israel. Welcome back, James.
2: All right, thanks. Glad to be here again.
0: Glad to have you. We mentioned a few weeks back that uh, you're celebrating your 16th anniversary with an event here in town, and we thought when the time drew near, you should remind us about that.
2: That's right. The sweet 16th anniversary bash at Maryland's in downtown Sacramento, 908 K Street.
0: In fact, that'd be tonight. That's
2: right. Tonight.
0: And the time would be?
2: Eight o'clock is when the show starts. Um, Free Hooch Comedy Troupe, our own local comedy troupe, is going to be opening up about eight o'clock. And then Will Durst will show up at nine o'clock. And... America's
0: foremost political comic.
2: You know, I like to remind people he was a political comedian before he was a columnist. Our readers have been seeing him in our paper for about 14 years now, I think. So if you really like his column, and I get a lot of feedback that people really do. Love his column. He's like 10 times funnier in person, so you got to come check him out.
0: And the event is not sold out.
2: Not yet. Um, You can go to Humortimes.com for more information.
0: All right, and I'm sure people will do that. You know, you you got Durst's number, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you want to talk to him? let's, Let's give him a call. All right, returning to the program for his, I don't know, fourth or fifth appearance, I think, is America's foremost political comic, Will Durst. Welcome back, Will.
3: Hey buddy, how you doing? Thanks for having me back.
0: We're glad to have you back because <laughs> I look at these headlines and I think I wonder what Durst would have to say about this. You know,
3: George Bush, I'm gonna miss him <laughs> so badly. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go into some sort of other profession. <laughs> Nobody can keep up. He has raised the bar so high for political comedy.
0: But then, you know, Congress is chipping in. Well, I'm looking at this headline, which i got to get your input on. Here's a headline, actual headline from Yahoo News. I'm looking at it right now. U.S. Congress may act to keep guns from mentally ill.
3: <laughs> Why would they do that? Yeah, I don't They're know. They're infringing their rights. <laughs> well, the problem there is determining who is the mentally ill. I mean, you know, I'm sure there were people out there who would... Love to put you and I on that list.
0: Well, I know doubt about that. Uh, did you know this? Did you know that Mitt Romney is George Romney's son? Yes. I did not know that. That was truly a different era when a guy goes forward, his his old man, George, and loses he was his... He brainwashed his, in right, Vietnam. Rom. Right, for telling the truth. Apparently telling the truth the American public didn't want to hear. He
3: was brainwashed.
0: Yeah, his son's not going to make that mistake.
3: <laughs> well, Romney, uh, Romney, I mean Mitt... He's got the whole Mormon thing to deal with. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It, actually, it may be you know, a curious spectacle to the American public. You know, They get tired of the First Lady, they'll move on to the Second Lady and the Third Lady. But the whole thing about him going hunting, what was that about? I've been a lifelong hunter my entire life. And then what? Oh, okay, well, I went hunting twice.
0: Right When he was 15, right. what, the 15 he went on to somebody, his cousin's ranch or something?
3: Yeah, it's lifelong, I guess. You know. Yeah, well... God, if you go two times, that makes you life... I mean, you use that kind of logic. That makes George Bush a lifelong reader. <laughs> makes him a lifelong resident of Baghdad.
0: Hey, Will, what'd you think of uh, John McCain going to the, the Baghdad market and saying things are really tranquil now, with the 20 snipers up on rooftops, uh, attack helicopters in the air, and 100 armed Bombay men?
3: vehicles, yeah. Yeah. Well, Representative Mike Pence, I thought, was even worse, where he said, you know, it reminded me of an outdoor market in the summertime in Indiana. Geez, <laughs> I don't remember the bulletproof vest when I was <laughs> marketing in the Midwest, you know? Yeah, I guess he comes from a rough spot in
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, Will, you're coming to town here uh, tonight, in fact, uh, for a benefit for uh, the Comic Press Times, now known as the Humor Times.
3: Yes, it's their 16th, sweet 16th anniversary. And in honor of their anniversary, they're changing their name from the Comic Press News, which everybody in the Sacramento area knows, the ubiquitous racks. You see them all there. It's where you get your best uh, editorial cartoons and a couple of uh, fairly funny columns.
0: Yeah, pretty good columnists they got there. uh...
3: They got one. (laughs) They got one. I don't know about the other guys, but that one guy is pretty good. And then they're changing their name to the Humor Times. And we're going to have a big bash, Sweet Sixteen Party at Maryland's tonight. All right. I think it's on K Street.
0: So. I'm quite confident that many of our listeners will want to come down and rub shoulders and, uh, and, and take in your comedy stylings.
3: Yes, and also I, I will give them the answer. Well, I'll give it to you. The answer why George Bush is still has full confidence in Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, both his name and his title start with the same two initials, <laughs> A-G. It's the only way he can remember who's filling the position.
0: Will Durst, always a pleasure. Hope we'll have you back on again before too long, because I think it's, you know, we we need to do this on a regular basis. Everett,
3: good to hear from you, and uh, hope to see you down there tonight.
0: All right, very good, sir. Take it easy, buddy. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, James, anything you want to add to that?
2: Yeah, we're going to party on after Durst is done with his set. Uh, About 10 o'clock, the band Mindex is going to come on. They're a great local jam band. And then we're just going to party out the rest of the night. So um, for people who need to go home early, you can see Durst at 9 o'clock. And uh, he'll be there about 45 minutes. And uh, for anyone that wants to stay and party, we got the party. Yeah, that's uh, tonight, 8 o'clock at Maryland's 908 K Street, downtown. And tickets are available at the door.
0: All right. I'm sure good time will be had by all. Indeed. James Israel, thanks for coming back, telling us about this.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. Let's take a short break. Our guest in this segment is writer Steve Ettlinger, author of six books, whose fascination with everyday consumer products has led to his current work, Twinkie Deconstructed. And yes, by Twinkie, we mean that mass-produced yellow snack food cake seen in convenience stores everywhere. They apparently sell 500 million Hostess Twinkies every year, and like other similar products, its ingredients are selected to be economical for the baker while promoting the ever-important shelf life. If you've ever perused the label of a commercial food product, you know that the list of ingredients is long and full of biochemistry. Steve Etlinger was doing exactly that one day with an ice cream bar when his daughter joined in to ask, Daddy, what is polysorbate-60? Thinking that was a fair question, Steve set out to investigate what ingredients were are eating in such products and where those items come from. Some of the answers will surprise you. I was surprised just by taking courses in organic chem, biochem, food science, medicine, and working several summers for a canner where I held the title of condiment clerk. We're especially pleased to welcome Mr. Etlinger to KDVS, affiliated as we are with UC Davis, a university founded to provide science to the art of growing food. Steve Etlinger, welcome to Radio Parallax.
1: Oh, I'm delighted to be here.
0: Can, uh, can we start with one of the uh, the book's big surprises? Um, you, you subtitled it. My journey to discover how the ingredients found in processed foods are grown, mined, yes, mined, and manipulated into what America eats. Since you even inserted this double take in your title, I think we better start with f- foodstuffs that are mined, starting with the ingredients of baking powder.
1: Yeah, I was blown away to find that the ingredients in baking powder, the, the ubiquitous little can of white powder you find on everybody's kitchen shelf, and, which is the same, basically the same stuff they put in Twinkies for leavening, came from rocks. In fact, it comes from three different rocks, and uh, those are three out of the five that provide ingredients for Twinkies, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. I was able to go out and see them mined in Idaho and Wyoming. There's another place I didn't go in, in, in the Ozarks, where the limestone comes from. But in the, uh, the, the best one was the Trona mine. which Trona is an ore that's found in a huge deposit in Green River, Wyoming, it's almost pure sodium carbonate. And uh, I found myself going down a mine shaft 1,600 feet down, which is the distance that's equal to the height of the world's tallest building. <laughs> then got into a jeep and drove for half an hour. <laughs> it, is so, it was so big. And this is one of five mines there. And I saw them at the uh, face, the mine face, where they were scraping off this rock, which they then convey up to the surface for, for a, a small amount of processing.
0: You talk about uh, leavening, and I think people think of yeast as something that makes food rise, but uh, I was sort of intrigued to learn that this whole idea of using a powder, a non-yeast way of making stuff get bubbles in it, uh, is pretty new. New as in, like, a century and a half old.
1: It is one of the very first consumer products, mass-produced, mass-marketed consumer products. When, when, when first baking soda and then later baking powder were the first things that people were able to buy in the can with labels and so forth. And that's why, in fact, the labels on baking powder are so old-fashioned that uh, people grew attached to them. <laughs> they haven't <laughs> changed in all these years, <laughs> you know, the ones on Calumet and for yeah. baking powder and so forth. It's really, uh, it's really uh, quite neat. In any case, the powder was a replacement, really, for yeast, which wasn't the thing you needed in cake. You know, yeast is for bread and it's a little unpredictable.
0: You could have picked any commercial food to examine. You started looking at an ice cream label, but you decided to select the Twinkie. What made you settle on the Twinkie?
1: You know, I had so many artificial ingredients to look at. I was trying to find a handle that would allow me to do a small number of them that made sense to readers and work, you know, that worked for a book. And, uh, well, it's, it's almost got a plot now, because what I did was I, I found a, a well-known product with an ingredient list that had just the right number of ingredients to make a book at a chapter per ingredient, <laughs> which had a range of ingredients, as opposed to three ingredients or a whole lot of colorant or just vitamins or what have you. And I'll be darned if <clears throat> the Twinkie ingredient list didn't turn into the table of contents of Twinkie Deconstructed. It is.
0: Well, it looks like you came up with 39 different ingredients to examine for the, in the course of the book.
1: That's it. 39. It's <laughs> just uh, amazing. But you know what? They, they may all be chemicals, but so is all food. Uh, some of those chemicals are flour, <laughs> right. sugar, <Sure>. water, <laughs> Right. <laughs> that old hydro- dihydrogen oxide,
0: that really gets you. Yes, it, yes, it does. Let, let's set a couple of urban legends about the lowly Twinkie. Um, first off, its primary ingredient is indeed wheat flour. They really are baked, and they really do have a finite shelf life.
1: Yeah, it's 25 days, <laughs> but it, it, is, <laughs> it is a shelf life. And they they do go stale. Uh, Not very fast. They don't spoil. But it's more because of sugar than because of the, uh, well, the sorbic acid does a good job. Sorbic acid, by the way, is the only preservative.
0: It's the only preservative, and everyone seems to agree this is a very, very safe uh, thing to put into your food.
1: It really is. It's safer than salt. Now, you have a food science um, uh, school at Davis, correct?
0: We have quite a bit of food science that goes on here. Yes, we do.
1: I'm sure some of the scientists there would have something to say about this. I'd love to talk to them.
0: Well, I, I hope some of them will be listening. I'm sure some of them will be, and maybe we can put the two of you together because uh, just from my own personal reference, I would have loved if in the course of your book you'd put a, um, some ad- appendices in the back that had some of the, the biochemical pathways. I think it would really, for those of us with a little bit of background, then it would really make it interesting.
1: You know, I wanted to do that, but the editors thought it would be, it would be too techy, too sciencey for the book, which they wanted to appeal to readers uh, for, uh, just as, a, as an interesting book to read and a helpful book for consumers. But I had to haul out my, uh, I had to dust off my high school chemistry, to follow, just the, just to follow the story. For example, they'd say, um, someone I'm talking to would say, oh well, we react the, you know, the fluorapatite with, uh, with coke, and of course that makes blah blah blah, <laughs> and you can do the chemical equations for the most part fairly simply, not always. Color, I ran into problems, and the vitamins, I just went nuts. But uh, for some of the others, some of the reactions were very common or very simple. Uh, others were, well, like calcium sulfate is gypsum. It's just dug out of the ground. But it's the same stuff used to make plaster. Yes. But for plaster, they dehydrated a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, there's a slight chemical. It's not really even a chemical equation, but there are chemi- chemical formulas there that are fascinating to follow. And, and I'm thinking I should do a, a, a magazine article that... That that uh, you know focuses on that.
0: Well, Steve, I hope I hope that in edition number two you do you do uh, you do put some of those um, some appendices in there.
1: Yeah, well, that that would be neat. Um, I also thought of doing. Um, well, or, you know, originally you're gonna love this. I had to follow the chemicals and the reactions just to understand what was going on, and then overlay that with geography where. Yeah. And overlay that with the companies doing it, and overlay that with a schedule if I was going to travel to see this done yeah. and then try to coordinate it so it made sense so that I could see unrelated products that happened to be in the same, same area of the country uh, um, ultimately you know what that didn't work really? I just called people up and said can I come see you and I went
0: <laughs> you made mention of calcium sulfate uh, as being a food ingredient and yes it apparently goes back to antiquity being put into food but it's also better known to I think people as plaster of Paris and, yep. what, and what they make sheetrock out of in all of our homes Ver- versatile right. stuff
1: it's the same stuff. There's this one deposit that's so pure uh, that all they have to do is dig it up and grind it up for use in food. It's in Southard, Oklahoma. But the same deposit produces very clean wallboard.
0: <laughs> well, you talked about vitamins a second ago, and, and their vitamins are in the news. As of you know, this week's headlines, Coke and Pepsi are going to come up with a new what they call sparkling beverage. They're going to vitamin fortify stuff. Uh, we think of vitamins as, as, you know, associated with health. They're by law added to enriched flour, and, and and yet vitamins apparently in many cases originate from Chinese petrochemical plants. Partly because vitamin manufacture can be environmentally unfriendly.
1: That's right. That that was one of the more astounding things that I learned. Um, one vitamin is made in Europe now for sure, and the, the people who make it invited me over. It's in a little valley in Switzerland. They would have loved to have me there. I, I, as it happened, I, I couldn't justify the trip because it's. You know, it would be a, a, several days of travel for a couple paragraphs. But um, they were wonderful. They make niacin. The other vitamins tend to be made now over in China. They used to be made here in Europe, but it, over the last few years, both the chemical companies and the in poli- the political climate and the economic climate have all sort of converged to force the manufacture to other to to China really just because it's easier and less expensive to meet all the requirements uh, necessary. Now, ferrous sulfate is is the only mineral in the mix that's made here uh, <laughs> with a surprising process of dipping rolls of steel into big tubs, <laughs> you know, football field length, full of sulfuric acid. Not an auspicious beginning for something you eat, but there you go.
0: Right, it's sort of a byproduct of of iron of steel manufacture, I guess. That's right. Yeah. Well, when it comes to ingredient number one on that Twinkie label, bleached flour, we should point out we're indeed we're talking about chlorine bleach, the same stuff that whitens your underwear when you launder them. And uh, this is something, um, I guess, in the late 1800s, they found a faster way to bleach flour. Flour naturally bleaches when it sits. It oxidizes and becomes whiter, but they, that was too slow.
1: That's right. This, this uh, bleaching process takes, it's instantaneous. The... Uh, Chlorine going in is, of course, poisonous, but it immediately reacts. And you uh, you know your chemistry. It reacts uh, very quickly to, to form a little uh, hydrochloric acid with the moisture in the uh, flour. And I suppose other things. I don't know the full chemical reaction, but it doesn't. It, it becomes benign very quickly. And uh, it helps destroy the protein to the extent that it makes for better uh, cake flour. And certainly you can have bread flour that's bleached, but many people bake bread without bleached flour, because they want the strong protein, so they get a really strong, tough, dense loaf.
0: Well, I do want to note when I was comparing some of the labels of things down the grocery store that uh, when they make the Fig Newton, they don't bleach the flour, but they do when they make the Twinkie. (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) Um, Twinkie Deconstructed has quite a few surprises. One that I think is going to really um, wake a lot of people up is the fact that flour mills are at risk of explosion. If you have suspended flour dust or other uh, a carbohydrate dust, you can ignite it with a spark or a flame. I don't think people realize that.
1: It's really amazing, but every now and then you'll hear of silos in the countryside blowing up, that, that's why. But I was surprised that they had to be so careful in the flour mill. A lot of reverse uh, ventilation, uh, negative air pressure, sealed doors, and a policy of not repairing machinery until everything's shut down.
0: We're speaking with Steve Ettlinger, author of Twinkie Deconstructed, uh, which tells you maybe more than you even want to know about what goes into some of our processed foods. I think everybody knows, Steve, that oil and water don't mix. In cooking, they have to kind of be coaxed to do so. Can you talk a bit about how this is done by the home chef versus the commercial baker? Because a lot of the ingredients that you examined are related to what's called emulsification.
1: Right. When you make a cake at home, chances are you're going to have egg yolk maybe even egg white, maybe a whole egg, but definitely egg yolk in the cake. It's a great emulsifier. If you've ever made mayonnaise, you know you can absorb, what is it, a zillion I think the technical term is a zillion times its weight in oil. (laughs) It is such a great emulsifier. It'll hold things together. When you eliminate fresh eggs from the mix, from the recipe, in order to extend that shelf life, as they have done with Twinkies, then you need something else to emulsify. And that emulsifier also... or or that emulsification also needs to help with forming bubbles in the batter, which, let's face it, undergoes a lot more stress than the batter you make at home. It is mixed quickly, it doesn't have time to set up, and it's cooked quickly. So they usually bring in a team of emulsifiers, mono and diglycerides, which are the main emulsifiers in milk, polysorbate-60, which is a real workhorse, and sodium sterolactylate, which I love saying, and the three work together to emulsify, as best they can. Uh, I might add, in the cream filling, you not only have to have an emulsifier, but you add something that that acts like an emulsifier, adds a fat feel to the uh, non-cream, cream cream filling, and that is cellulose gum, which is sort of a gelatinous uh, thing once it's it's powder, but when it's moistened, it makes a big gelatinous blob, and that that helps make that cream filling taste like it's actually got cream in it when it doesn't
0: and i think we could basically maybe the best way to describe what what cellulose gum is it's it's basically a form of paper wouldn't you say
1: sort of it it's processed in the same place that makes uh paper that makes makes paper but um it also comes from the linters the part of a cotton ball that are sort of next to the seeds and uh when the cotton seeds are pulled out at at the gin the lin- linters are separated out, and those are 100% cellulose. It's a major, major source of cellulose. I, you know, I, I tend, I, I'm sure you do too, you tend to think of cotton as, as a, a thing, not a food. Right. But, in fact, you forget, you know, cottonseed oil, we use that, you can buy that in the grocery oh,
0: store. sure, yeah.
1: It's a vegetable. And trees, uh, yeah, <laughs> trees are vegetables.
0: And we should point to, that's why the 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 cream in Twinkie is spelled E-M-E, not E-A-M.
1: <laughs> right, I have a subhead that says there's no cream in the cream. <laughs>
0: One real surprising thing from Twinkie Deconstructed, which I didn't give too much thought to, is the fact that uh, some of the ingredients that are used in commercial products are used in very tiny amounts. They mix them in just a little bit to a large batch, which does make them the perfect vehicles to use if some terrorist wanted to poison people. So actually, this is kind of a a homeland security issue, and I guess there was some restrictions on, on your research in this regard.
1: Oh, absolutely. A number of companies, especially the big flavor companies, said, look, a few years ago, when, when I asked them if I could come visit, a few years ago we might have said yes, but since 9-11, forget about it. Uh, now, they're pretty competitive, so I think it suits them not to have visitors. Exactly, and, yeah. You know, a lot of businesses don't want to be bothered, which is legit. Yeah. But where it got funny was I was at, in, visiting a dairy plant in the middle of Wisconsin dairy country, surrounded by Beautiful bucolic green fields and and contented cows in a brand new plant with it, looked, it was a big plant, but it looked like it had ten people running it. And uh, yet I had to wear a bright red lab coat and a red hard hat to distinguish me as a potentially dangerous guest <laughs> because of Homeland Security rules. Wow, maybe it was just because I'm from New York. I don't
0: yeah. know. <laughs> Not, not surprisingly, sweeteners uh, uh, come up uh, in, in the matter of, of a Twinkie. You talked about sh- uh, sugar early on, and I was rather astounded to learn from your book that no sooner had the New World been discovered than European powers had like 3,000 sugar mills in the New World by 1550. That, that's amazing.
1: Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Yes, yeah, sugar really spurred the development of the Americas and the Caribbean completely. And then, and then uh, the British blockaded the French supply of sugar, when they were fighting Napoleon. And uh, so Napoleon is really responsible for people turning to beets for sugar and developing ways, ultimately, of of finding uh, of developing corn
0: syrup. And, uh, and and corn sweeteners, of course, hugely important. We can probably do a whole show on those alone. But I was curious, noting on the label, they list dextrose and glucose in the labeling, and, and they're the same thing, which which is why these labels can get even more confusing than they already are. Oh, I, I'm
1: so glad you, you know. It's so much fun to talk to you because you know this stuff. That drove me crazy. And and on several levels, there was no way you could find out what people were were really meaning. For example, I might call a plant a corn syrup plant, but they might call it a dextrose plant. And they pump really dense corn syrup somewhere. They might call it dextrose because it's all dextrose. In Europe, that would be called glucose. Mm -hmm. In in Europe, they might call any corn syrup glucose. In uh, the U.S., they might call glucose the powdered uh, dextrose the powdered form and glucose the liquid form there is a technical difference but they you know they're usually interchange perhaps it's, it doesn't matter to most people and I never could get it straight um, partly because the people I was dealing with didn't care and what I ultimately found out was that they probably have both on the label uh, because both are common terms however <laughs> I did have to just sort of uh, eventually uh, accept that um, the dextrose was the term used for solid or the powdered or dried uh, version.
0: Well, for people in, in medicine, when you see a dextrose solution like D5, uh, whatever, um, I had an argument once with a, with a doctor friend of mine. He said, you know, it's, a, it's just glucose. He said, no, it isn't. I said, yes, yeah. it is. And, yeah. and, and it is. All right.
1: Dextrose in Europe is sold as a granular, you know, ultrafine white powder. I actually bought a box of it here, uh-huh. and it's labeled glucose.
0: Sure, sure. Well, salt is about as basic a, as, as a food comes, um, but I think a lot of listeners will be surprised to note that that um, by no means does most salt come from plants like the one we have nearby here in Newark, California, near the Dumbarton Bridge, San Francisco Bay Area. You, in fact, visited a facility in upstate New York that pumps water into the ground and pumps brine back out.
1: Right. It's, it's, it's an old-fashioned technique. It's the same as used for oil, uh, actually. And um, it was fascinating to me to go to a, a beautiful field next to or between dairy farms to a little little hut, really, and inside I'd find some a Christmas tree of plumbing on which there was a spigot that was covered with salt crystals. I tasted some. Boy, that was salty. <laughs> um, and the, the plant which I visited was very old, it's like 100 years old and or more, and um, they basically spend all their effort drying it, but drying it in such a way that it comes out with crystals that are just right. It's also where they make the little blue containers that uh, I, I really got a kick out of seeing
0: that. Yeah, I, I read one somewhere that uh, pretzel salt, they mine that because the crystals are flatter than the little tiny cubes we're used to and that, that allows them yes. to stick onto pretzels better. Well, I think the biggest laugh I got from Twinkie Deconstructed, and that would come after uh, your mention in the intro, of an executive with the title of Vice President of Cake. You have to like that.
1: Yeah, when I first called the hostess hoping to get a tour of a plant, they put me under the Vice President of Cake. That's got to be the best title in the world. That's what I want to be when I grow up.
0: But, but even even better than that, from the book, was the refusal of tech support at one company you inquired with to admit that it makes polysorbate-60. They would sort of, you noted it was kind of like a craft, neither confirming nor denying that it makes cheese.
1: There's so much merging and reorganizing going on in the food chemistry business and the chemistry business in general, that from one day to the next, these companies you know, weren't quite sure what they were doing, and, and the people would go to work each day in the same place, and the plants would be there, but they changed change names. Uh, that, that was probably the oddest thing I, I, I ran up to. I'd been past the guy because, you know, you ask, uh, can I talk to someone about polysorbate 60, and they'd say, yeah, talk to him.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, I think the, the final thing to talk about today, you spend some time on artificial and natural flavors, which is, which is again, you could t- we could do a whole hour on that, I'm sure, if we, we set aside to. But the artificial butter flavor that comes in Twinkies or also in the case of movie theater popcorn is made in Chinese petrochemical plants, which I guess we get... By the time you're done with the book, you sort of are used to that. But the great irony uh, you noted in the book was that its containers are labeled harmful if swallowed.
1: <laughs> just, just amazing. Well, the, the um, diacetyl is so strong... It's a natural uh, flavor, but it works in in concentrations in, well, you'd appreciate this being in California, Chardonnay's buttery smoothness uh, linked with diacetyl. It's 50 parts per billion in Chardonnay. So you can imagine if you got it concentrated how how strong it would be.
0: Well, I guess that is the difference between like a poison and a useful substance. A lot of times it's all in the dosing.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, just think about uh, salt, for example. You know, you couldn't eat a pound of salt. And, you know, it would kill you, but you can't live without it either. And I get a kick out of the, the, uh, the dosing for, like, ferrous sulfate, which is a, a, in the, the mineral salt supplement you, you buy at the pharmacy if you want. But if you go out and buy Moss Killer for your patio, to spray on your patio, chances are it'll be ferrous sulfate.
0: <laughs> the book is Twinkie Deconstructed, My Journey to Discover How the Ingredients Found in Processed Foods are Grown, Mined, Yes, Mined, and Manipulated Into What America Eats. And I think even if you're someone who hates Twinkies as much as I do, uh, you'll find this to be a very interesting read.
1: Oh, I, I sure hope so. By the way, there's some more information on the website, twinkiedeconstructed.com, including the table of contents, which, as I said, is the, the ingredient list on Twinkies, and, and an index, some excerpts, and some pictures.
0: Well, Steve Etlinger, th- we thank you very much for speaking with us about what it is we're eating, and hope that, uh, that yeah, we can put together uh, you and some, some food science people here at UCD.
1: Uh, it'd be my pleasure.
0: Thanks for having me. All righty. All right, we are back. Let's do some science. Um, We sometimes do obituaries in our third segment, and we have a few piled up, but those are going to be deferred as well, except I do want to note what the New York Times had to say about the late Momofuku Ando, the man who invented top ramen. Said the New York Times about the late Mr. Ando, his place in culinary history is secure. Teach a man to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime. Give him ramen noodles, and you don't have to teach him anything. And this would be a good place to insert this little item out of New Scientist magazine. One of their correspondents noted that written on the label of a bottle of Bateman's Autumn Fall Multigrain Beer was the following. As it contains no fish-based finings, those are substances used for clarifying liquid, it is vegan-friendly. Ideal as an accompaniment to traditional pies and spicy Lincolnshire sausages. Which causes the reader to ask, which part of the word vegan do they not understand? There was a curious article a couple days back about, uh, well, this is actually where the field of legal slash stupidity meets science. Defense attorneys are trying to get every criminal a brain scan so they can find some abnormality that they can say, well, you see, he's not responsible. He's got a medical condition. And we are going to talk more in the future about the pseudoscience involved with uh, death penalty opponents trying to claim that uh, people to get lethal injections might be suffering. This whole debate will allow about, you know, a jillion billable hours for uh, California's defense attorneys. But I just wanted to note, before we fully delve into science, the article by Christina Jewett in The B, noting that Kathleen Colhane, a defense investigator, had fabricated dozens of statements from jurors and others in her quest to overturn death penalty sentences, according to lawyers for the Attorney General's office. Colhane was, in fact, cited for 23 false declarations submitted in four death penalty cases. I just find it curious that among the cases Colhane worked on were the uh, case of Michael Morales, wherein she was working for Los Angeles attorney David Sr. and Kenneth Starr, the attorney who investigated former President Bill Clinton's relationship with Monica Lewinsky. The article did note that prosecutors said they'd seen no indication that the defense attorneys knew about Colhane's alleged forgeries. But in other areas where dubious claims meet science, we have a Sacramento News and Review uh, article they did titled, Scientology Does Detox. Now it so happens that this correspondent is in a bit of a unique position. I know people who have done Scientology's purification rundown, dating back to my days as a student in Davis. I can offer my professional medical opinion that it is mostly a bunch of hot air. Someone named Alton Rich wrote the news and review after that article appeared, noting that the claims made by the doctor, Dr. David Root, who was quoted in the article, uh, the claims he is making about the Scientology Purification Rundown, which is part of the religious practices of the Church of Scientology, have not been proven by any reputable clinical trial or study and can be dangerous to anyone not healthy enough to withstand long periods of exposure to the high temperatures of sauna, or who may have actually come in contact with a caustic chemical. He concluded by noting this treatment is all part of the pipe dream of the deluded mind of science fiction writer and all-around con artist L. Ron Hubbard. Now, oddly enough, somewhere in my uh, VCR files, I had a tape which was, re- was recording something else, but I managed to-, to tack on at the end of it by accident an interview they did on one of the Sacramento uh, TV stations back in the 80s with the guy that invented the purification rundown. He was a local guy. He worked in the Church of Scientology. Hubbard took a liking to what he had done and decided to make it uh, part of what everyone should do to supposedly clean the drugs out of your system. He had sort of a laughing attitude about it, like, Hey, I'm glad Hubbard liked it. Well, as we've talked about in this program before, uh, not all vitamins are harmless. Uh, Certain vitamins, the fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K, are not, uh, not the type that you can just excrete in your urine. I don't know the details of this detoxification process, but uh, I understand that vitamin A is a part of it, and that uh, that should one needs to be cautious. I remember also they gave people some whopping doses of niacin, which is a vasodilator, which uh, which had interesting effects on people as they underwent this, uh, you know, menopausal-style major hot flash. And I can't help uh, I can't help but uh, mentioning uh, one area where science uh, the science seems dubious. Once again, string theory. Once well, again, want to quote Lee Smolin of Canada's Perimeter Institute in Waterloo, Ontario, along with Peter Woit of Columbia University, who've noted that after all these years, string theory, with its umpteen dimensions of space-time, still hasn't produced any testable predictions, which causes them to note that it's not really physics; it's just mathematics. On the other hand, we were completely enchanted by an essay in New Scientist magazine by Ed Belbruno, a mathematician at Princeton University, who has a book out titled, Fly Me to the Moon. Turns out that uh, Mr. Belbruno, or I guess it's Dr. Belbruno, after a spell as a mathematician at Boston University, went to work at NASA's JPL in Pasadena. He was designing trajectories from the Earth to Jupiter for the Galileo spacecraft. And while working at JPL, which he thought was pretty exciting, he got interested in applying chaos theory to the design of spacecraft trajectories and and wanted to find a way for vehicles to go from the Earth to the moon without using rocket engines to achieve lunar orbit. By doing so, you save lots of fuel and lots of money, and, uh, well, no one had ever shown that it could be done. So he set to work to see what he could come up with. And by early 1986, he found such a route, which he called the Lunar Getaway Special. There's some problems, though. I mean, the Apollo astronauts got to the moon in three days using rockets. The journey using this method uh, would take two years. His colleagues uh, thought it was all a waste of time, and his, you know, big breakthrough was pretty much ignored. And then to make it worse, in January of 1990, they fired him. He said, the feeling, said my boss, when he called me into his office, was that my ideas would never be useful. He kind of took it pretty hard. He sort of felt that to get his life back together, he needed to let go of the notion that he was stupid and he had nothing to prove to anyone. But here's the part I love. Not long afterward, he got a knock on his door, and it was an engineer telling him about a Japanese lunar spacecraft that was stuck in Earth orbit with very little fuel left. He asked if he could save it. said by the next day he devised a new route to the moon based on his ideas. The craft was called Haiten. They worked it out, and a year later, using what little fuel they had, they started it out on its plotted path. And in October of 1991, it arrived at the moon, a mission that had been considered impossible just a few months earlier. He noted in closing, I never got my job back at JPL, but some years later, the importance of my work was formally acknowledged by NASA. All right, and speaking of really, really cool stuff from NASA, which we weren't, but we are now, the Cassini mission, currently in orbit around Saturn and its satellites, uh, made a buzz run, uh, kind, of, kind of swooped past um, Saturn's giant moon Titan, and applied its radar to peering through Titan's thick, smoggy atmosphere to see what the surface held. And the radar images they got are pretty stunning. They've suspected for some time that there would be liquid uh, ethane or methane on the surface of Titan and it might form uh, seas, and they've now found them. Well, if if not seas, they've at least found very large lakes of hydrocarbons. We will refer you to the Planetary Society's website, article by Amir Alexander, a previous Radio Parallax guest which shows an image of a very large lake uh, near Titan's Pole and has its image set aside that of Lake Superior. The lake on Titan is bigger. If you haven't seen this, you, you really need to do so. It's got Lake Superior, which 82,000 square kilometers of water, set aside this yet uh, unnamed lake on Titan of about 100,000 square kilometers of some combination of ethane and methane. And even though this large body of liquid uh, you know, is, is not water, this alien sea looks a lot like its counterparts here on Earth. It's got rivers that are plowing into it. It's got floodplains. It's got coastal islands. It's got straits. It's got channels. It's very cool. I'll tell you, when you see this kind of thing, it makes you realize what exciting times we live in, in a good way. And as far as cool science goes, we have a final item uh, from right here at UC Davis. According to Jason DeLong, Assistant Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering here at UCD, scientists have coaxed a common soil bacteria into strengthening the ground it lives in, which raises the prospect of new construction techniques for stabilizing slopes or reducing earthquake damage. Scientists here at Davis have started with some loose, sandy soil and basically replicated that process that forms sandstone. Of course, they've, they've sped the process up uh, considerably. The process works by using some heavy equipment to inject a solution that has some nutrients, uh, some calcium, and some microbes, which supplements the existing microbe population, sticking it down into some loose, sandy soil. And as the microbes flourish, they release carbon dioxide gas, the uh, CO2 in the soil then reacts with the calcium to form calcium carbonate, which uh, I'm sure you all remember is limestone, or also forms, forms seashells. Just in this case, instead of using clams to form calcium carbonate, they're using bacillus pasteuri. Of course, as, as I'm reading this article, which I have in front of me, I, I think the bee got this wrong. It, it raises the pH which causes it to precipitate, whereas CO2 dissolved in rainwater causes limestone caverns because it eats away the rock. Hmm. Well, we're going to have to get uh, Dr. DeJong on this program and talk about this. We have been beaten to him by Jeffrey Callison over at uh, Insight, uh, and I would recommend that uh, you check out his interview over at capradio.org insight, at least until we can get him on this show. We are just about out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax.